0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Your Brain on Facts book and Moxie LaBouche voiceovers. No job too small. Don't forget, listeners get 50% off. They say there's a war on Christmas. Americans spend $3 trillion a year on Christmas shopping and celebrations. Almost 20% of sales across all industries come from holiday shopping. 12% of Americans start Christmas shopping in September. If there really were a war on Christmas, Christmas would be winning. There is no war on Christmas. But there used to be. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America, NA member FDIC. If there's one thing that typifies the celebration of Christmas, it is indulgence. Christmas has long been a time to break out the good booze and gorge yourself on sweet desserts made with expensive imported spices, to say nothing of the gift giving. You know who didn't like all of those things? Oliver Cromwell. When he and his Puritan forces took over England in 1645, they vowed to do away with decadence and went full Alan Rickman, Sheriff of Nottingham, and canceled Christmas. Shops were ordered to stay open on December 25th, and soldiers patrolled the streets with orders to seize any and all food they found being prepared for a feast. It would take no less than restoring a king to the throne, in this case Charles II, to get Christmas back. Puritans weren't exclusive to their native England, and a bunch of them thought the unspoiled beauty of the New World could really use some severe self-denial. The Puritans we refer to as pilgrims, and about whom many myths were dispelled in our recent Thanksgiving episode, were even more orthodox in their Puritanism than Cromwell, Bonus fact, that parallels the split between the Amish and the Mennonites. The Amish broke off because the Mennonites weren't strict enough. Since the Puritans were among the first Europeans to establish themselves in what would become America, celebrating Christmas was not a thing. It wasn't simply that they didn't celebrate it themselves. They didn't want anyone to celebrate the holiday they had dubbed Fool's Tide. As in England, shops and schools were expected to be open, though interestingly, churches were ordered to be closed on Christmas, one of the two days a year when even the laziest Christian can be bothered to turn up. It was more than the frivolity and gluttony that they minded. They viewed it as not properly Christian. Puritans followed the Bible very strictly. If something wasn't in the Bible like taking any day for rest other than a Sunday, it might as well have come straight from the devil. That would include the idea of resting on the day that Jesus was born. But since the Bible also doesn't specify what day that is, no big loss. As historian Stephen Nissenbaum explains... Puritans were fond of saying that if God had intended for the anniversary of the nativity to be observed, he would surely have given some indication as to when that anniversary occurred. The date of December 25th wasn't officially the Mass of Christ until the 4th century, when Pope Julius I subsumed the Roman festival of Saturnalia into a Christian celebration which gave us some of our most enduring traditions, like holly and candles. Puritans were also not keen on the papacy, so they didn't care if it was official. For 22 years, from 1659 to 1681, the celebration of Christmas was actually outlawed in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The law went into effect one year after the Brits had gotten their Christmas restored by, well, the Restoration. The law stated that in order to prevent disorders to the great dishonor of God and offense of others, anyone found celebrating the holiday, either by forbearing of labor, feasting, or any other way, would be fined a hefty five shillings. On one Christmas day, Plymouth Governor William Bradford noticed some people playing an old equivalent of baseball and ordered them all to get back to work. Now would be an appropriate time, if I may make an aside, and I may because it's my show, to remind people that religious freedom is when you say, that's against my religion, I can't do it. But religious freedom does not mean, that's against my religion, you can't do it. Even after the ban on Christmas was repealed in 1681, staunch Puritans still fought against Christmas celebrations for decades. In 1686, the newly appointed governor of the Dominion of New England closed shops on Christmas Day and sponsored a holiday service. This idea was unpopular enough with enough people that soldiers had to accompany the governor to church. Those sorts of protests of Christmas would continue, but their focus would shift from celebrating at all to the way in which it was celebrated. And what a way it was. We aren't talking about a family sing-song and three helpings of pie or even old-timey wassailing. Colonial celebrations of Christmas looked more like Mardi Gras mashed with Halloween if it took place during spring break. Drunken revelers would take to the streets, wearing scary masks or dressed like animals, singing boisterously and demanding food, drink, and money under threat of violence. Add in the ancient pagan roots of those practices, and we see that the Puritans had quite a lot to get their noses out of joint about. Boston minister Cotton Mather preached to his congregation more than 30 years after the law's repeal, The Feast of Christ's Nativity is spent in reveling, dicing, carding, masking, and in all licentious liberty. By mad mirth, by long eating, by hard drinking, by lewd gaming. Oh wait, those are meant to be bad things. After the American Revolution, or the kerfuffle of ungrateful colonials, as the British call it, that's a real thing, you don't have to Google it, just trust me, English customs fell out of favor, and since celebrating Christmas had come over from England, it began to peter out too. It wasn't even declared a federal holiday until after the Civil War in 1870. It was around that time that Americans reinvented Christmas, and it changed from a raucous pagan carnival holiday into a family-centered day of nostalgia. Nostalgia used to be considered a mental illness, by the way, but that's a story for another day. So why the shift? The early 19th century was a period of class conflict, high unemployment and rioting by the lower classes that tended to come to a head around Christmas time. One such Christmas riot in 1828 moved the New York City Council to institute the city's first police force in response. This motivated certain members of the upper class to change the way people viewed Christmas. Literary figures like Washington Irving, the man who helped codify the until-recently unchallenged view of Christopher Columbus. In 1819, Irving wrote The Sketchbook of Geoffrey Crayon, Gent, a series of stories about the celebration of Christmas in an English manor house, wherein the rich person invites the poor into his home and the two classes of people get along swimmingly and celebrate with, quote, ancient customs. As nice as that is, it's worth noting that the details of the book's revelry don't parallel any celebration we know of Irving actually attending, and seems to have been completely imagined. It's the season of giving, and you can give love to your favorite podcasts as easily as telling a friend or sharing or retweeting one of their social media posts. It's immensely helpful. And of course, I don't know a single podcaster who doesn't love getting a new review. Like this one we got recently from Lauren Chrissy B., who said, When I want to listen to something interesting, but everything is too manic, Moxie is who I turn to. Your pace is comforting, the research is high quality, and it is just so nice. This podcast calms my nerves and keeps me engaged. And thank you for the phrase, Schrodinger's joke. It eloquently explains so many interactions. And for those who don't know, Schrodinger's joke is when a dude bro posts something online and then, once it has come back to bite him, decides it was just a joke and you all aren't smart enough to get it. And of course, if your favorite podcaster happens to have a book out based on their podcast and you want to leave a review for that, that is immensely appreciated as well. And I do hope some of my listeners will be getting the book for Christmas. And a special thank you to everyone who bought the personalized signed copies to give them as gifts. Here's another much-appreciated review for the Your Brain on Facts book, which you can order through bookshop.org, all the convenience of online shopping but supporting your local bookseller, from my buddy Dan Pugh over at the Bunny Trails podcast. If you have any interest in language, in why we say the things we say, and the English language is just nuttier than a rat in a tin outhouse, you got to listen to Bunny Trails. But what Dan had to say... I cannot give high enough praise for Moxie's book. I've been a fan of her podcast since I first heard it about a month after it debuted. So when she said there would be a book with all new facts, I jumped on board. Moxie writes as she speaks, with a smooth, easy tone, and a penchant for finding just the right angle to any story. You can read it cover to cover, or just jump in the middle. Either way, you'll still get great facts. I highly recommend this book for yourself, or as a gift for the upcoming holidays. Better yet, do both. Well, you heard the man. Of course, it would have helped if I read this a month ago, but better late than never. And if you would like to hear your opinions read out over the air, as it were, do leave us a review on your podcast player of choice, or if that doesn't seem to be an option for you, check out podchaser.com. It's like the IMDB of podcasts. If you're thinking to yourself, well, thank goodness that's all in the past and everybody can celebrate Christmas now, let me stop you right there. Around the world, celebrating Christmas runs the gamut from deeply entrenched cultural identity through fringe activity observed by a minority to actual literal crime. In Brunei, for example, anyone celebrating Christmas faces a fine of up to $20,000, five years in prison, or both. The law, enacted in 2014, arose from concerns that celebrating Christmas, quote, excessively and openly, could lead the Muslim population astray. Officials from the Ministry of Religious Affairs reportedly visit local businesses to check for Christmas decorations. Christians are allowed to celebrate in private, but they have to give the local authorities notice beforehand. Saudi Arabia is also famously anti-Christmas. Muslims are not allowed to even greet non-Muslims on non-Muslim holy days. According to Saudi scholar Sheikh Mohammed al arifi if they celebrate the birth of God's Son and you greet them, it means you endorse their faith. The government of Somalia has declared Christmas to be not relevant to the principles of Islam and argued that Christmas parties could give terrorists an excuse to attack feels like it's reaching a little bit, but okay. Tajikistan bans Christmas trees, gift-giving in schools, fireworks, festive meals, and fundraising during the holiday season. They also ban Father Frost specifically, but we'll come to him a little bit later. Christmas comes under fire both nationally and locally in China, in line with President Xi Jinping's efforts to exclude Western influences and encourage people to be models of adherence to Chinese traditional culture. This is a bummer for the 44 million Christians in the country, which is admittedly a lot of people, but if we zoom out, they only represent 5% of the population. Despite that, Christmas has been catching on as a general time for parties, shopping, and food, particularly among the emergent middle class. The Chinese have even invented their own Christmas traditions, like eating apples on Christmas Eve. The words for apple and Christmas Eve sound similar in Chinese, and is thought to bring good luck. At the same time, the atheistic Chinese Communist Party has taken a hard-line stance on most religions. The government has demolished Christian churches, evicted congregations that meet in people's homes, and detained outspoken pastors and bishops. At least four cities and one province have ordered Christmas decorations banned. Officials in Hengyang in Hunan province posted on their official social media account that anyone caught holding Christmas sales or celebrations that block the street would be punished. Communist Party members are asked to set an example by boycotting Christmas. College students protested the holiday wearing traditional clothing and carrying signs asking people to resist Christmas. In 2017, grade schoolers in the Shanji province swore under the national flag, Say no to Western festivals. Start with myself. Pass down traditions. Celebrate Chinese festivals. In Longfang, a city of four million southeast of Beijing, Government employees must report public Christmas displays and celebrations, and vendors selling Christmas goods are to be, quote, cleared out. Similarly to Somalia, part of their justification for this is supposedly the safety of the celebrants, citing tragedies like the New Year's celebration in Shanghai in 2014, where a crowd of 300,000 people trampled three dozen people to death. If we're talking about anti-Christmas rules in places with strict control over their people, we can't leave out North Korea, which has outlawed the celebrating of Christmas entirely. South Korea seems to have an opinion about that, seeing as how they have permitted a giant Christmas tree to be illuminated within sight of the world's most heavily guarded border. That was in 2014, coincidentally the same year as the film The Interview, Which supposedly precipitated the hacking of Sony Pictures, one of the biggest cyber intrusions to date. Before I go further into the story, I do want to say this is another one of those times where lots of articles were written when the action was incipient, and then it seems like the world lost interest and nobody reported on the outcome. The structure of the tree was a 65 foot tall tower that had first been set up in 1971. The bombed Tower was reportedly condemned by the North, who called it, quote, a provocative display of psychological warfare. While the North has no authority over what happens in the South, they do have a lot of missiles and bombs and such, and threatened to shell the tower. The tower had to be taken down earlier that year, citing supposed structural safety, and North Korea warned of a catastrophic impact if a similar structure was ever built. According to the state-run news, The tower is not a tool for religious events, but a symbol of manic attempts to raise cross-border tension and provoke armed conflicts. North Korea's record of ba humbuggery goes back decades, objecting to Christmas trees at the border as early as the 1960s. The New York Times reported in 1964 that Pyongyang had complained about American troops throwing snowballs at North Korean soldiers around the demilitarized zone, which sounds funnier than it was smart. North Korea is one of only a few examples where an alternative holiday is offered, the celebration of the birth of the glorious leader's grandmother, Kim Jong suk Joong-suk, who we know to actually have been born on Christmas Eve in 1919, was an anti-Japanese guerrilla and communist activist, wife of North Korea's first dictator, Kim Il-sung. Called the sacred mother of the revolution, many pay homage to her by visiting her tomb and collectively glossing over the mysterious circumstances of her death. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in depth coverage on current news and discoveries from strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready, or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science, wherever you get your podcasts. Officially, North Korea is an atheist country, and so much as carrying a Bible can result in imprisonment or even death. Considering North Korea has a three generations of punishment rule, which could see your children and future grandchildren also imprisoned for your crime, it's nothing to sneeze at. According to North Korean teaching, Kim Il sung and his son Kim Jong il are god kings, and any other religious belief or symbol that suggests otherwise is suppressed. One man who escaped the regime told Business Insider. There is no Christmas in North Korea. I did not know what it was. Christmas is Jesus Christ's birthday, but North Korea is obviously a communist country, so people don't know who Jesus Christ is. They do not know who God is. The Kim family is their God. Strangely, evergreen trees festooned with lights and baubles can be found around Pyongyang, but they stay up year-round, and most people who see them are completely oblivious of their meaning. North Korea isn't the only country to both outlaw Christmas and try to supplant it with another holiday. Cast your mind back to a time before there even was a North and South Korea, to the Russian Revolution. The end of the Tsarist monarchy brought with it the mission to rid the recently formed Soviet Union of all religious behavior. Christmas, in their eyes, was bourgeois and superstitious. The state prohibited people from selling Christmas trees. The Soviets declared the 25th and 26th of December to be days of industrialization. This meant that everyone had to go to work, all day, so as to celebrate national industrialization. Anyone who missed work on those days could expect to be punished. Schools instituted anti-religion classes and infused anti-religious sentiment into pretty much all the other classes. There were even festivals, organized by the League of Militant Atheists, specifically to denigrate religious holidays. In 1923 and 24, and then again in 29 and 30, the Komsomol Christmases and Easters were basically holiday celebrations of atheism. And these weren't your regular block party or village fate. According to one historian, quote, The marchers included students, members of women's organizations, and working-class youth, with horsemen following behind holding anti-religious banners. These were followed by trucks-bearing clowns mocking God, a figure of God embracing a naked woman, and mock priests and rabbis chanting indecent versions of religious liturgies and standing in ridiculous poses. This parade culminated in images of Buddha, Christ, Muhammad, and Osiris being burned on the bonfire. Well, you can't say they didn't apply themselves. The 1920s were marked by several anti-religious campaigns. Soldiers stormed churches and seized their assets like vikingers at Lindisfarne. Supposedly, the stolen goods were to be sold to buy supplies from abroad as the USSR sank into famine. Houses of worship were converted into granaries, bathhouses, and museums of atheism. During the first five years of Soviet power, Bolsheviks executed more than 1,200 Russian Orthodox priests, 28 bishops, and an untold number of rabbis, many of whom had been sent to the Solovki Camp of Special Purpose, the first Russian concentration camp. It's estimated that the state murdered between 12 and 20 million Christians in its various anti-religious campaigns across the 70 years of Soviet rule. Where there had been some 30,000 Orthodox churches in 1929, by 1940, only 11 years later, there were fewer than 500 remaining. In 1932, Stalin issued the Five-Year Plan of Atheism, which called for Not a single house of prayer shall remain in the territory of the USSR, and the very concept of God must be banished from the Soviet Union as a survival of the Middle Ages and an instrument for the oppression of the working masses. Okay, this is getting pretty heavy. I mean, I want people to know how foolish it is when they claim there's a war on Christmas just because you saw a store display that said Happy Holidays, but there's a limit to everything. So let's take a quick break for some really strange Christmas laws that I found along the way. Louisiana adopted a law in 1837 that made it illegal to collect debts and bills on Christmas Day. If your debt would have come due on the 25th, you'd have an extra day to pay it. Arkansas passed a similar law the following year, but your debt was going to be due one day earlier. In Mexico and Costa Rica, Christmas bonuses aren't a perk. They're the law. The Aguinaldo must be paid by December 20th, and companies that try to cheap out face a fine of as much as 315 times the legal daily minimum wage. In New York City, there's a law against natural Christmas trees in retail stores. In Philadelphia, you can't have natural trees in high-rise buildings or any multifamily dwelling. In both cases, the reason is fire safety. Since 2011, all Christmas trees are taxed 15 cents at the wholesale level to fund a marketing program to improve the image of natural Christmas trees, analogous to Got Milk or The Incredible Edible Egg campaign. In Michigan, be sure to hold on to your receipt. It's illegal to transport a Christmas tree without proof of purchase. The article did not say why. I'm going to assume it's to stop pine poaching. You know, cutting down trees that aren't yours to cut down. If I have any folks in the glove or in the UP... Hop onto the social media, Facebook and Instagram, your brain on facts and Twitter at brainonfactspod. Let me know if you've ever run across this out in the wild. In Nebraska in 2018, an elementary school principal banned candy canes because historically the shape of the candy cane is J for Jesus. Yes, it definitely doesn't have a curve in it so you can hang it from a tree. If you want a reason to ban sticks of minty sugar in school, Ban them because every child I've ever known has sucked their candy cane into a shiv at one point or another. Don't go overboard with your Christmas lights in New Jersey, and a number of other places, or you might be fined for light trespass. And don't leave the lights up too long, either. In San Diego, you have until February 2nd to take them down or get fined $250. In Maine, they better be down before January 15th. In my family, we always took everything down on January the 6th, the 12th day of Christmas. Okay, everybody feeling refreshed? Now back to Russia. Traditions die hard, and people moved the things from Christmas that they couldn't give up over to New Year's Day, which they already had off from work. Christmas trees became New Year's trees. 1937 saw the debut of Grandfather Frost, or Dead Moros, a sort of re-engineered Father Christmas with more Eastern European sensibilities. He still had the long white beard and long coat, but the coat was now blue. And he still delivered presents only on New Year's Eve instead of Christmas Eve. Grandfather Frost actually calls upon legends even older than Christianity to a Slavic wizard, or possibly a snow demon, though the word demon wasn't pejorative. Another important difference from Father Christmas was Grandfather Frost's companion, Snegoroshka, the Snow Maiden, his granddaughter and helper. Snegoroshka is the only female sidekick of any Santa Claus analog that I've been able to find. And I suspect I'll be reporting on Snegoroshka again this week, When I am joined by Sean from Stories of Your and Yours, as well as Drew from The Real Feels Podcast, and Nick from Nikolai's Kitchen to play Spot the Lie, the Patreon-exclusive podcast. Basically, two truths and a lie with some of your favorite podcast hosts. And over on the Patreon this week, they're also going to be treated to one of my favorite holiday traditions. A hundred miles south of Stockholm, Sweden, every year, They build a 20-foot-tall straw goat, the Yavulbok, and someone burns it down. You can hear that and dozens of other mini-bonus episodes at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Christmas would become a public holiday again after the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, but the New Year's traditions remained. Whereas Russians are known for vodka and partying, today, New Year's, is a night where they stay home with the family. Sometimes something bigger than a law, bigger even than a government, curtails Christmas. Something like a world war or a global economic collapse. Remember when we talked about World War II rationing in Episode 104, Making Do? If not, I'll set the scene for you. Britain imported a great deal of its food, so the Germans sent U-boats to take out the merchant navy. Rationing was introduced in January 1940 and would extend well into the 1950s, initially restricting bacon, butter, and sugar. By 1942, meat, milk, cheese, eggs, cooking fats, and other foods were rationed. Many foods that weren't rationed were prohibitively expensive people were encouraged to grow or raise as much food as possible. Like many of us, they had to make do with less, while not going out socially and spending long evenings hunkered down at home. Except they were in blackout conditions and periodically getting bombed. Plus, they had to worry about their fathers, husbands, and sons dying in a foreign field. They might have to spend Christmas in an air raid shelter surrounded by strangers. Their children were also with strangers. Being among 100,000 children put on trains out of London for the relative safety of the countryside, a part of World War II history we just don't seem to hear about in the U.S. Sort of puts COVID quarantine into perspective, don't you think? Blackout meant there could be no Christmas lights on shops or homes, but inside was another story. Of course, you had to get creative. In 1941, to conserve paper, the Minister of Supply decreed that "...no retailer shall provide any paper for the packing or wrapping of goods, excepting foodstuffs or articles which the shopkeeper has agreed to deliver." Wrapping paper was right out. But there was always newspaper, which also found itself reborn as paper chains and snowflakes. You might only have a branch of pine rather than a whole tree— And shout out to my upstairs neighbour in my last apartment who ripped down a branch from the park across the street. You could zhuzh up your branch with this helpful tip from the Ministry of Food. A Christmassy sparkle is easy to add to sprigs of holly or evergreen for use on puddings. Dip your greenery in a strong solution of Epsom salts. When dry, it will be beautifully frosted. Homemade gifts were the order of the day because they could be made cheaply and were usually something the recipient needed. An old sweater with a hole or one that had simply been outgrown could be unraveled to provide wool to knit new scarves, hats, and gloves, an especially good gift with heating fuel being scarce too. Jam made from fruit grown in the family's allotment became a sweet treat to top the coarse but filling national loaf. Plus it provided vitamin C. Last thing you need in a war zone is scurvy. If you had the money to buy a present, you could give a war bond and do your bit for Britain. The most popular present for Christmas of 1940 was apparently soap. Like nearly every other consumable good that we're used to seeing aisles and aisles of, soap was rationed and thin on the ground, about one bar's worth per month. Stop and think about how many bars of soap or bottles of the liquid equivalent are in your house right now. Listening to the wireless radio helped to pass the evening. Singing carols and popular songs like White Christmas and I'll Be Home for Christmas were an important morale booster. The wartime solidified the British Christmas tradition of Panto, which you can hear more about in the episode Panto to Python, A History of British Comedy, which was back in November of 2018 before I started properly numbering the episodes. Speaking of sing-songs and panto, after the wrapping paper settles on Christmas Day, check your podcast app for a special crossover bonus episode with Michael from Genuine Chit Chat and his girlfriend Megan as we compare and contrast Christmas in the UK and US and hold each other personally accountable for things like Hallmark movies and eggnog. The BBC also broadcast a special Christmas Day radio program. From 1939 onwards, this featured a Christmas speech by King George VI, an important ritual that made the jump to TV and the transition to Queen Elizabeth II. Rationing posed a challenge when it came to Christmas dinner. We're talking about a period where you used liquid paraffin in place of vegetable oil, and you get one egg, per person, per week. And you only get an ounce of cheese per week. I eat an ounce of cheese while standing in front of the open refrigerator deciding if I'm going to eat some cheese. The government temporarily raised sugar and tea rations, and clever homemakers saved ingredients weeks or months in advance. You probably couldn't get your hands on a turkey but maybe you could barter with someone who raised rabbits, or you had enough room to raise backyard chickens. People also participated in pig shares, where they would go in together to buy a pig and pay to have it fattened, then at the end split the meat. After the government took half for the soldiers, of course. Or they could put some bricks of spam together and pretend it was a whole ham. Carrots from the allotment could sweeten Christmas puddings, and breadcrumbs would make it stretch to feed a few more people. As the war progressed, much of the Christmas dinner was subbed out with mock substitutes, like mock goose, i.e. potatoes, and mock whipped cream, which was primarily margarine. Fruit bowls were right off. Fruit was entirely too scarce. In fact, an orange in your stocking, which today is used as a threat to naughty children like lumps of coal, Was an incredible treat. Instead of fruit bowls, people were encouraged to make displays of veggies. The ministry commented that, Vegetables have such jolly colors. He's not wrong, actually. It wasn't all rosy in the wartime Christmases, of course. Factory workers were vital to the war effort, so they only got Christmas Day off and had to be back at work first thing Boxing Day, even though the 26th of December had been a public holiday since 1871. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Here we go into another holiday where we wish COVID wasn't happening. But we can't wish it away, and the vaccine's not here yet. And even when the vaccine comes, we still need to be careful because we don't know what's going to happen. I just want everyone who hears my voice to take care of themselves and each other so that I can talk to you again next Christmas. Special thanks to all of our guest quote readers this week. Zach from Wasteland Active Radio, David from the Don't Assume Podcast, Paul from Varmints, Adam from Odd Dad Out, Bill from Big Impact Radio, and Mike from Genuine Chit Chat. Remember, you can always find source links and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And stay safe.